chapter 16. So if you brought your Bibles or if you want to grab one of the Pew Bibles, I'd encourage you uh, to open it up as we take a look at this uh, section of God's Word together, this last chapter in the book of Romans that we've been studying all summer now together. Uh, But before we actually dive into God's Word this morning, I invite you to bow your heads and pray together with me. Lord God, I pray that the words I'm about to speak and the thoughts that we think is together, we meditate on your word. Lord, I pray that that would all be truly acceptable in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer, the source of everything that is good in our lives. Amen. So when you first take a look at Romans chapter 16, you see a lot of this. I commend to you, Phoebe, greet uh, Priscilla and Aquila, greet Epinetus, etc. And it's kind of this whole list of people that Paul is saying hello to and sending his greetings to. And uh, kind of like some of the genealogies in the Old Testament, you would be tempted if you opened up your Bible and found this was your daily reading to just kind of skip right. He's just kind of skipped past it. Well, this is just Paul saying hello to a lot of people. It's not really that important, uh, not really much here for me to study or uh, to learn. Uh, But the interesting thing is, in one of Paul's other books, when he was writing to a young pastor named Timothy, he said this. He said, all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching. In other words, what Paul was saying is, even this section of Romans where he's just greeting people, well, it's part of God's word, right? And, and that means even though uh, it's, it's very human in some ways, Paul saying hello to some folks there in Rome, uh, it's also breathed by God. It's inspired by God. In other words, the Holy Spirit led Paul to say things the way he did here. And, and because of that, we believe that we should take the time to dive into this section of God's word together today. We shouldn't just say, uh, we're just gonna chip, skip chapter 16 of Romans. We studied the rest of the book. That's all that's really important. So we're going to do that together this morning. We're going to dive into this section of God's Word together. And in fact, I would argue that there are five things for us to explore in this chapter this morning. First of all, there's something significant about the role of women in the early church that we want to make sure we don't miss. Second of all, there's a, there's a, a concept here of team ministry that we see at work in Paul's ministry through this section uh, that we want to pay some attention to. Uh, there are a couple of cool stories if we dig a little deeper into a few of these names, and so we're going to look at a couple of those together. Uh, then Paul has a warning for them about division among them in their church, and that warning still applies to us today. It's something we want to look at together. And finally, there is this beautiful closing to the book of Romans that is a wonderful ending, not only for this chapter, but for all of our study of the book that we will take a look at at the very end of the message this morning. So that's a lot to do, and a lot to do in only 45 minutes, so let's dive, I'm kidding, uh, let's, uh, let's, uh, so let's dive right into God's word together. So at the very beginning, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Kencrea. Now, now, first of all, notice something. He says, I commend Phoebe to you. That means, in all likelihood, that Phoebe was the person that was delivering the letter for Paul. Remember, in those days, they didn't have the post office. They didn't even have the Pony Express, right? Uh, for them to deliver a letter, for Paul to have this letter written... Um, and then delivered to the church in Rome. He had to send it with someone. And uh, we believe because of the way he begins this chapter with this person named Phoebe, and he commends her to them that she was indeed the person delivering the letter. 
And that meant she didn't just deliver the letter. Normally in that context, when they found out there was a letter from Paul, they would have gathered the church or the churches together into one place. And then the person bringing the letter would have read the letter to the people gathered there. Uh, so Phoebe was their reader this morning, okay, or that morning. And, uh, and not only that, the person bringing the letter would have then, after reading it, taken a little time to kind of explain some things about the letter uh, that, with some instructions from Paul. So she probably not only read the letter, but she might have even delivered the sermon that day as they were gathered together. Pretty interesting. Now, now notice what Paul calls her. He, he calls her a deacon in the church of Kenkrea, which, by the way, was just outside of, of uh, Corinth. She's a deacon in the church there. Now, again, if we look at Paul's other letters, in, uh, in his letter to Timothy, he talked about qualifications for the leaders of the church, and he talked about elders and deacons. So evidently, Phoebe was a leader in the church. Now, that kind of flies in the face of some of what we expect. Because we kind of have this picture in our minds, at least of the church in Paul's day, being led kind of exclusively by men. Not the case. And in fact, we have some, uh, maybe some preconceived notions in our own minds about what leadership should look like in the church. We're a part of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod tends to see the role of women in some ways kind of narrowly in leadership in the church. But, but here's this woman named Phoebe, who was obviously in an official position in the church, who was the one that Paul chose to deliver his letter and teach about his letter in Rome. And that kind of flies in the face of what we expect, doesn't it? Now, just in case we, uh, just so we don't miss it, later in verse 7, he says this. He says, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Now, once again, this poses a little problem for people that tend to see the role of women narrowly in the church, because... There's this guy named Andronicus and this woman named Junia, and he says that they are outstanding among the apostles. Now, now by the way, various men who have been uh, teaching about and translating the Bible over the years have really struggled with this verse, and they've done some interesting things. In fact, if you have your pew Bible open, the editors of the ESV Bible chose to rephrase this and to say, they are well known to the apostles. Because obviously, Junia couldn't have been an apostle, right? So even though literally the translation is that they are outstanding among the apostles, the ESV translators chose to say, well, the, the, the apostles know them real well. Now, by the way, there is virtually no justification in the Greek for that translation. What they've basically done is they've taken it and translated it into English and then kind of rephrased the English to fit what they expected it to say, not what it actually says. By, by the way, at least that had a little bit of integrity to it, I guess. There are some translators over the years that simply take the name Junia and change it to Junius, a male name. They go, well, it must have been a guy, right? Now, folks, I'm not trying to draw any conclusions out of this. I'm just pointing out what the text says. And, and if we are truly going to be people that believe what God's word says and take God's word at what it says, we have to recognize that at least these two women had significant roles of leadership in the early church. And by the way, they're not the only women in this list, are they? 
There's a number of women that Paul uh, greets and commends as partners in ministry over the years. So, so what do we do with that? Well, well, even though we are part of a conservative church body called the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, what, what that means for us is that we should, I believe, as a church here at Trinity and Lyle, do everything we can to lift up the leadership of women among us in our church. Okay, let's take a look at another thing that he has to say here. He goes on to say this. He, he has this whole list of people that he's greeting, and, and look at the different things that he says about them. He says, some of them have been his benefactors. They have risked their lives for me. They have worked very hard for you. They are co-workers in Christ uh, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. He refers to another person as having been a mother to me, another a dear friend in the Lord. Folks, if you read chapter 16, it's hard uh, to, to do anything but picture Paul as a part of a team of people that have been laboring for the gospel, right? I mean, I think we have a tendency to think about Paul sometimes as kind of a loner, right? Uh, as, as kind of this, this uh, charismatic leader who went place to place, kind of by himself, preaching the gospel, uh, starting new churches, and we just kind of think of him that way. But when we actually look at what he has to say here in this chapter, and by the way, when we do things like read through the book of Acts, what, what we see is that Paul was never alone anywhere he went. He always had partners with him in ministry. Wherever he went, he always developed a team of people there in that place uh, that worked together for the sake of the gospel. You know, we say it all the time here at Trinity that uh, you can't grow spiritually unless you're connected relationally. And we, we uh, encourage people to be part of small groups. And, and, uh, and we as a staff work together to be a team in ministry. No one ever works alone because that's the way God envisioned it to be. God created us to love the Lord our God and to love one another, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And you can't do that alone, can you? So, so this idea that, that, as, that God calls his people to do some amazing work, but he calls them to do it together, is right here in the heart of this letter that Paul teaches. And by the way, if I could just say a little personal note, I am so blessed to be part of the team that we have here at Trinity. I don't know how many, that's a, a, we had a staff meeting yesterday morning. Yes, I am kind of a slave driver. I make them come on a Saturday morning for a staff meeting, right? Uh, but, uh, but we had a staff meeting here yesterday morning, and that's the new picture we took for the website of our staff team. And, and there's some folks that aren't there in the picture that couldn't be here yesterday morning, but most of them are there. What an amazing staff we have here at Trinity. We are so blessed with, with so many people who have given their lives to God's service here in this place. And I gotta tell you, it is one of the greatest joys and privileges I have in ministry to serve with those folks that you see up on the screen. It truly is. Team ministry is an incredible blessing from God. All right, let's, let's push on again. There are some cool stories when we take a look at some of the names and we do a little bit of detective work on those names. Now, now one of the couples that Paul refers to here in, in verses three and four is he says, greet Priscilla, or depending on your translation that you're using, Prisca, that's the same name. It's kind of like Rich and Richard. You know, Prisca, Priscilla. Priscilla is the longer version. Prisca, the shortened version. So uh, your Bible may have chosen one or the other those names, but it says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. 
Then Paul says, says this, he says, they risked their lives for me, not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. And then he says in verse five, greet also the church that meets in their house. Now, if you've read the New Testament, those names should look familiar to you. Um, here's what we know about them, not only from God's word, but from uh, some early church histories. We know that originally they lived there in Rome. And, uh, and in 49 AD, so maybe about six or seven years before Paul is writing this letter, they were kicked out of Rome. Uh, remember when we first began our study of the book of Romans, we told you that there was this emperor named Claudius, and because of some problems that were happening there in Rome, he expelled the Jews and with them the Christians out of Rome. Priscilla and Quilla had to leave Rome, and, and, and the next we know, they show up uh, in uh, Galatia with Paul, and, and they're there with Paul uh, for a, a period of time, I'm sorry, not Galatia, in Corinth with Paul. They're there in Corinth with Paul for a period of time, helping him do the work there, and then in Acts chapter 18, we're told they go with him to Ephesus. And it's there in Ephesus that we're told really how significant that their leadership was because there's this uh, guy by the name of Apollos who's a, a wonderful young preacher. And, uh, and we're told there in Acts 18 that, that, that he was just a very powerful speaker for the Lord, but, but he didn't quite have his theology of baptism right. He didn't quite understand what baptism was all about. And, and in fact, uh, his baptism was all about the baptism of John for repentance, and he didn't understand what Jesus' baptism was all about. And so we're told that Priscilla and Aquila heard him speaking, and so they take him aside, and they explain to him the way of God more accurately. Now, I love two things about that. First of all, notice they didn't embarrass him in public. They didn't stand up in the middle of his sermon and go, Pastor Mark, you got, I mean, Apollos, you got that wrong, right? They didn't do that. But they did take him aside, and quietly they taught him what was wrong. They, they, they also didn't just ignore the fact that he didn't quite have his theology right. And, and so they take him aside, and they kind of quietly and carefully help teach him. And uh, by the way, normally in the Greek, um, when you list a couple of people, you list the most important, the most prominent one first. Again, the indication here is that it was primarily Priscilla that was leading the way in this instruction of this young man, Apollos. We, we then know that in 54 AD, when, when Claudius died and Christians were able to return to Rome, apparently Priscilla and Aquila did return to Rome, and they're back living there now. And, uh, and not only are they living there, but they've started a house church there. They have a church that is meeting in their house. I just think it's kind of an amazing story when you think about uh, these, these people who ended up becoming so, so prominent as leaders in the early church. And, uh, and we see them appear and work carefully for the sake of the gospel in a number of different places, their ministry intertwined with Paul. Here's another kind of cool story. Take a look at Romans 16, verse 13. Paul says this, he says, greet Rufus, uh, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Now, there's one other place in the Bible where the name Rufus appears. Anybody remember where it is? It's in Mark's gospel, and it's not only in Mark's gospel, but it's near the end of Mark's gospel when he is describing the last uh, day of Jesus' life before he was crucified. 
We're told this in Mark 15. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, it's kind of an interesting reference. It's interesting the way Mark puts that, right? All of a sudden, out of nowhere, in his gospel, as he's describing what happened to Jesus, he says uh, this guy named Simon, who was, who was from a place called Cyrene, which, by the way, was straight across uh, the, the Mediterranean Sea from Rome. Uh, he, he, he describes that he was there, and he says, oh, by the way, it's kind of like he says, you know who Simon was, because he's Alexander and Rufus's dad, as if the readers of Mark's gospel would have known who Alexander and Rufus were. Now, guess where a lot of theologians believe, based on the evidence, Mark was when he wrote his gospel? He was in Rome. And, uh, and, and so if indeed that is true, and, and, and if indeed, as Mark writes his gospel, he wants people in Rome to say, oh, well, you know these guys, you know them, Alexander and Rufus, it's very likely, in fact, most theologians would agree that the Rufus, that Paul is writing to there in Romans 16 is the same Rufus that Mark is referring to. In other words, he's the son of the guy who carried Jesus' cross. So, so let's read between the lines a little bit there. Think about that story. Here's this guy from Cyrene, probably a devout Jew, probably there in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration and maybe even having brought his sons with him. And there he gets randomly picked out of a crowd. By the way, those of us that are Christians believe there's no such thing as random, right? There's no such thing as coincidences. God is at work. And, uh, and he gets chosen to carry the cross of Jesus. And apparently that had such an impact on him and on his family that, that, that years later, 20-some years later, one of the leaders of the church there in Rome is that man's son, and he's well-known to Paul, and not only is he well-known to Paul, look what Paul says about his mom, uh, Simon's, Simon's wife. Paul says, she's been like a mother to me. Very cool to see the impact of that moment in that one man's life and the impact on his family and his children for years to come. Now, there is an important warning in this section that we want to make sure we don't miss. Uh, take a look at uh, the, near the end of this chapter in verse 17. He says this, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. And then he goes so far as to say you need to keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Folks, why is division such a problem in God's church? Think about that for a minute. Why is Paul so concerned about division in the church? So much so that he says, if there are people that are causing division among you, you need to not have anything to do with them. In uh, one of his other letters, a letter to a young pastor named Titus, he says this. He says, to those who would cause division among you, warn them once, warn them twice, then have nothing to do with them. So why does Paul say division is so dangerous to the church? Well, think about what happens to the message of the gospel, to the mission of the church when the church is divided. 
I was just talking with, uh, with somebody yesterday. I was at a wedding. Um, I had two weddings this weekend. That was kind of fun. I, I don't get to do that many weddings anymore, and I had a couple of weddings this weekend. And afterwards, um, ran into the aunt of the bride who had no idea that, that we were connected. I, I was talking with them a little bit, found out that they're members of St. Peter Lutheran Church where I grew up, and she went, wait a minute, Schultz, was your mom named Isla? She, was, she and my mom had been friends years ago before my mom passed away. It was really kind of interesting, and we were talking a little bit, and they were telling me about how their son and daughter had been part of a church, and and now they didn't go to church anymore, and you know why they didn't go to church anymore? Because there had been a fight in that church, kind of a a falling out between the pastor and some of the leadership, and and it got kind of ugly, and they just said, if that's what the church is going to be all about, I don't want to be part of a church. Folks, division is such an issue in the church because it compromises our our mission, our mission of helping people to come to know Jesus and to be more like him. And, And that's why Paul says we need to take division seriously. Now, that doesn't mean we always have to just pretend like we agree with one another. But there are ways to love one another and disagree and uh, specifically, Paul says, what were, what were the divisions that he was most worried about? Those that were taking them away to the teaching that they have learned. In other words, Paul says the answer to division, the answer to those questions is go back to what you've learned. Go back to the gospel. Go back to God's word. God's word is the thing that binds us together and keeps us away from division. And by the way, Paul is not bashful at all. Look what he says about those who would cause division. Literally, he connects them in verse 20 to the work of Satan in the midst of God's people. Paul took division seriously, and so should we. And then finally, take a look at verse 25 and following. And let me just read these words one more time. Uh, Just listen to what they say. He says, now, to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaimed about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes by faith, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Those are beautiful words. A few things about them. First of all, that, that Paul has two choices on how he's going to end his letter. Sometimes he lends, ends his letter with a benediction, which is basically a word of blessing. You know, at the end of every church service, we have a benediction, which is a kind of a final word of God's blessing on you before you go out into the world. And sometimes Paul ends his letters with a benediction, a blessing, but not this time. This time, Paul ends with what we call a doxology. And what's the difference between a doxology and a benediction? A benediction pronounces God's blessings on the people. A doxology is the people blessing God. So it's it's directionally different. So instead of Paul blessing them in Rome, he invites them to join together with him and his words and give a blessing to God, to speak words of praise and glory to God. Now, even though they're praising God, there's something for them in these words. I love how he says, God is able to establish you. Uh, the, the word here is the word uh, kind of that would be used for you know, that one building in a town that is strong enough to withstand the earthquake. I, I love the image there. In other words, he's saying that God is able to make us the kind of people that no matter what happens, even if the world is falling apart around us, we can stand firm because 
of who we worship because of the God who is our God, because of what that God has done in us. It doesn't matter if everyone around you is panicking. We can be at peace because we belong to Jesus. He goes on to say this. He says, this is in keeping with the mystery that was hidden for long ages past but now revealed. What mystery is he talking about? Well, he's talking about Jesus. I mean, think about it for a minute. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and and they committed that first sin and God shows up and he speaks those words of judgment on the serpent, on Satan, and and he says that, 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 one, this offspring is going to come from Adam and Eve, and that offspring is going to crush Satan. Did Adam and Eve know exactly what that was about? I, I think they understood in some way that God was saying that he was going to do something amazing on their behalf, but, but did they understand that that was going to be Jesus who came to give his life on a cross and rise again from the dead? I don't think they understood that, but they knew that God was going to do something amazing. Or, or think about Abraham when, when, when God takes him outside and he points up to the stars and he says, see how well stars in the sky, you're gonna have more descendants than those. And, and then he says to him, and through you, all nations on the earth will be blessed. Did Abraham know that that meant that God was gonna send his only son as a little baby born in Bethlehem? He knew God was gonna do something amazing, but he wasn't sure exactly what or what about King David when he was writing his psalms? And think especially of Psalm 22 when David wrote those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did David know that someday those words would be on the lips of Jesus as he hung on a Roman cross to pay the price for David's sin and for yours and mine? Or how about this? When Isaiah wrote, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. When he wrote those beautiful passages in places like Isaiah 53 that describe this suffering servant who had come, did he understand that that servant would be the holy, perfect son of God? I don't know. It was a mystery. But now that mystery, Paul says, has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And folks, I love the words that he ends this letter with. They are the the words that we end our study with. Just listen to them again. To the only wise God be glory forever. And how does that glory come to God? Through Jesus Christ. Folks, the one lesson we should walk away from the study of Romans with is Paul knew how to keep the main thing, the main thing. You guys remember Jack Giles? Jack was one of our staff for a number of years. Uh, twice, actually. He was a member of the staff here at Trinity many years ago and, and then went away to the wilds of Minnesota and uh, eventually we got him back and he was here on our staff again. And, and Jack used to say it all the time. He would not let you forget it. He would say the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Jack understood that well and that's why when he When he died, he went to be with his Lord. And we know we'll see him again. The main thing is to keep the main thing. That's at the center of all that Paul wrote for us in this gospel. I mean, in this letter, this letter to the Roman church. As long as we keep Jesus in the center of everything we do, we're keeping the main thing the main thing. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, thank you for this gift of your word. And thank you for the summers. Together we have opened up the pages of Romans and and we've learned a lot of stuff, Lord. I pray, Lord, that through it all, we would always be reminded that at the center of everything is Jesus. 
It's all about him. Thank you for uh, those promises that you made in, in ages past, promises uh, that might have been a mystery a little bit to those to whom they were made, but now has been revealed to us as we know who Jesus is and what he has done. And Lord, again, thank you for this gift, this, this book of Romans through which uh, we've learned again about your love and your grace in our lives. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.